0: Purchase new wiper blades from O'Reilly Auto Parts today and we'll install them for free. See better and drive safer with O'Reilly Auto, Parts. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. Hey there, nakedly examined music listeners. It is summer when some people go on vacation and can't get their podcast editing done in time to give you the fresh interview that you were probably expecting today. So I'm doing one of those crossover things where I post one of the music discussion episodes from my Pretty Much Pop A Culture podcast to this podcast so that you folks can hear it too. I've got some very interesting guests who I'm talking with this time, including a musical artist, a critic, and a host of another music podcast that I don't mind plugging. This is a very dynamic, contentious discussion, originally recorded in November 2021. I hope you like it, and if you do, please go subscribe directly to the Pretty Much Pop Podcast at prettymuchpop.com and make sure you're subscribed to Nakedly Examined Music at nakedlyexaminedmusic.com. Here we go. This is Pretty Much Pop Culture Podcast, pumping out not only the hits, but the filler surrounding them. I'm Mark Linsenmeyer, still listening to the first Cars album on repeat. And our panel today...
1: I'm Noah Berlatsky. I'm a writer and critic, and most recently I self-published a book about the best albums of all time.
2: I'm Mobley. I'm a uh, singer, songwriter, producer, multimedia artist.
3: And returning to the show... I'm John Lamoureux. I'm the host
2: of the Hustle Podcast...
0: Yeah, so John was on recently. Noah was on quite a bit before that, sort of talking about criticism in general. Mobley, you're the new guy. Welcome. Thank you. I appreciate you having me. We got you through Noah, which uh, yes, it was Noah that kind of launched us on this topic: this uh, greatest albums of all time. Not that we're going to like say what they are, but the concept that there is a list of greatest albums. The concept of the canon list making, really the album format, which seems like it's a dying thing. I don't know. I can't get my kids to listen to more than one song in a row generally by an artist. But that is something we grew up on, where I did, you know, play one thing and spin it over and over, had just a pretty small selection as a teen of discs, of tapes, and that was the thing. I felt like taking things as a unit that way was the natural way to take in music, and now that seems like that's been completely undone. Noah, since you wrote this, tell us a little about the book that you just published that kind of launched this topic for us.
1: I started it like four years ago, I don't know. There was a Rolling Stone list of best albums of all time, which I looked at and of course it annoyed me. Rolling Stone's lists pretty consistently annoy me. I think it was their 500 greatest albums of all time list. I think they redid it and it's less completely boomer white rock now than it was even then. But it's the Beatles, it's Bob Dylan and The Rolling Stones, it's the usual people who show up on those Rolling Stones lists. So, you know, I made a list of 30 of what a different best of albums list might be like. And then I did another 30 and then I did another 30. And then I ended up writing a book which has like 180 entries and took me four years and is
0: colossal. Well, we should say the title, The Best Greatest Albums of All Time Ever. Yeah, that you're obviously skewering the genre. And it's an excuse for you to write cogent essays about particular things that you love.
1: Yeah, and to talk about how sort of limited any such list is. The thing about the Rolling Stones list that's irritating, I mean, it isn't so much that it's, yes, our favorite albums are boomers' roots rock from the 60s and 70s. You know, it's fine. People can like whatever they like, right? It's just that certain things get cited all the time, And the focus is so narrow that you kind of don't even get the sense that there's anything else out there, partially because they're done by consensus, right? So that kind of weeds out a lot of idiosyncrasies, and you kind of just get the things that are supposed to be agreed upon or that people are supposed to think are the best albums.
0: Right. It was a vote, though, a vote among the academy, among the professionals, right?
1: Among various people or experts or whatever. So you don't get the weird album you loved as a kid or you don't get things you discover. While I was doing the list, I got into Brazilian Tropicalia. So there's a bunch of that on there. There's Noise albums, which never show up on those lists because, you know, it's not a big enough genre. There's indie releases, which you can't find. The most difficult to find thing on there is probably this album by Sato Koji, whose name I'm maybe mispronouncing, who's a Japanese experimental artist who does like tape loop stuff. And he released this wonderful album called "And My Guitar Can Sing." I think it was called. Like it was two fifty-minute tracks of just a single guitar sort of riff looped over and over for fifty minutes, and it's wonderful and lovely. And he took it offline, so it's like completely disappeared. You can't listen to it anymore unless you downloaded it. But it's great. So why shouldn't that be on the list?
0: Mobley, as artist, can we get your sort of initial take on this whole list-making process and the whole concept of the greatest albums idea?
2: Kind of to draw on analog to something that Noah is saying, but to put it in kind of more stark and perhaps more grave terms. When you look at the canon, the Western music canon, what people think of as classical music and what a lot of people think of as quote unquote real music, the formation of that canon was a political project that was embarked upon explicitly by some around the turn of the century to prove German cultural supremacy. So what we refer to now in a very generic way as music theory, not Western music theory, not late 18th century German music theory, just music theory, the thing you use to analyze music has its roots in a cultural Supremacist project. That's an example of how insidious this kind of canon making can be, and the ways in which it can marginalize and truly limit the life opportunities of artists who find themselves in an out group, you know, in relation to whoever's decided to be the arbiter of true music, whoever's decided to be creating what's really real music that cultured, educated people know to be music of quality. And so. Well, I certainly wouldn't accuse Rolling Stone of doing anything that quite that insidious. When you look at, for example, the lineups of popular music festivals, a lot of artists who are selling millions and millions of records and are topping the charts will end up opening for artists who haven't been relevant for 30 years because of this sense that, oh, well, these people made real, real music. And, you know, this is just kind of a flash in the pan thing, even though it's the most popular stuff in the world. And obviously, there's a, a market for it, so that stuff even supersedes capitalistic considerations like how do we actually maximize profit for this festival because there's such cultural prestige around these things, that's kind of a roundabout way of saying, I think we have to be really careful about how we define greatness and how we and how we talk about it, because speaking as an artist, the impact that that stuff has on real decisions about like how people get to live their lives is actually pretty dramatic.
1: Yeah. I mean, one of the things I try to talk about in the book to a fair extent is how how much genres and like greatest lists are kind of a genre in themselves, like greatest albums, how much all genres in the US are defined by race. At the beginning of modern music genre formation, they very deliberately split up hillbilly music and race records, which is obviously less about stylistics and more about Perceived audience? Was that... Perceived audience, but also the perceived skin color of the people who are playing the music. And that's kind of the case throughout, even up to today, how R&B and pop and hip-hop and alternative music gets separated out. So, I mean, it's kind of changed to some extent, but rock is still considered more than most other genres for this kind of list. Rock was originally black music, but... That kind of got erased, and then it was considered to be this music by a bunch of white bands, and that matters a lot for what gets on the list and what doesn't. And there are other huge divisions as well, which are predicated both on race and gender and how that intersects with even what people are listening to who get a chance to form these lists. For instance, if you're just looking at sheer volume of music released, there should be a lot of Bollywood records on any list like this. India is just has this massive music industry, which is almost completely ignored in the US because it's not anglophone and it's delivered all through movies. I mean, there are records of those movies, but the main way you're supposed to experience it is through films and it doesn't have this crossover with what greatest albums or what great music is supposed to be. And that matters a lot for like what we think of as important trends in music or
2: what important music is supposed to be so like i tried to put some bollywood records that also relates to something that no one i've talked about in the past which is this i think these greatest greatest ever lists are kind of part and parcel to this popular notion of there being this meritocracy in the arts and in, in music and this sense that the cream rises to the top and if if it's not if i haven't heard of it, it I, I actually literally had somebody say this to me on tour a couple of months ago, which kind of blew my mind. I was the opening act on a tour and somebody was trying to give me a compliment and he came up to me and he was like, When you first started playing, I was like, I've never heard of this guy. How good? How good could he possibly be? But then you you played it and it was amazing. And it's like, You think you've heard of all the best musicians in the world? That's how seeing something live is supposed to work, that you don't know in advance <laughs> yeah. everything you're gonna see. Right. Totally. But also think about what you're saying. Like think about how limited your perspective is. I was in Colorado On tour and you live in Denver, Colorado. How many musicians from Eritrea have you heard of? How many musicians from Mongolia have you heard of? And so there's this way in which these lists tend to reify this idea that again of cultural supremacy, like the best music is actually coming from England and the United States and maybe a little bit from Sweden. When in reality, what that really proves is those are the places that have control of the means of production of popular culture and the, and the means of distribution of popular culture. But the question of the best music and the best art, like how on earth could that be so localized? If that's true, then we really need to be doing some scientific inquiry into how we're able to do this and mobilize that for some other things in terms of what humanity needs. But I think we all on this podcast would obviously agree that no, that's just who controls, who dominates world culture because of lots of geopolitical factors.
3: Boy, this conversation went deeper and darker than I thought. I imagined us talking about our favorite albums and what makes a fun <laughs> album and what's good, what isn't. This is heavier than I thought. We'll dismantle the existing power
0: structures in the first 20 minutes here. Then we'll get to that.
3: I don't know what the answer to all this is because originally when Noah was talking about his, you know, the guy from Japan that plays one note on a loop for 50 minutes and he loves it. And I'm thinking, well, I'm glad you love it, but why should that be on the list of the 500 greatest albums of all time. Are the masses going to love this? But then when Mobley starts saying, well, it's a matter of distribution and it's a matter of power. And if the guy, if the one note loop guy from Japan had the power to make his sound hit everyone in the world, they would all feel as strongly as Noah. And so the problem here is with controlling the message and oppression of the artist and it's like, man, I, I don't know. I mean, I like a lot of albums that I don't expect anyone else to like too. You know, one of my favorite albums ever is from this obscure British band called The Blow Monkeys because it's, it's got a lot of great saxophone on it. And it's one of my best albums of all time, but I don't expect anyone else to agree with me on that. So I sort of feel like this, the canon, I choose to think of the canon, I mean, maybe if you take away the 500 best and you rename it the 500 Most historical, or the 500 you need to hear before you die, or the 500 that created the infrastructure of rock and popular music that we know of today, maybe that would be a little more inviting.
1: The problem with sort of like turning it into, you know, what's most influential is that you run into some of the same problems because it's like, what's most influential in what context? I mean, I was just talking about Bollywood, right? There's like this huge history. You know, I mean, Bollywood's been a major hub of music, at least since the 50s, probably since the 30s. And, you know, most people in the U.S., you know, who don't have sort of any connection to that region don't know anything about it. And, you know, wouldn't be able to name like the top five artists of the last 50 years.
3: So is your argument then that the problem here is that Americans are just so up their own asses in ignorance that they need to spend more time with Bollywood music? Because if they did, they would love it like everyone else does. Or the other argument to this is that for whatever reason, Bollywood music hasn't been able to transcend the barriers of it, India or whatever. It does in some ways. It does. There's some flourishes on some pop songs, and we liked Slumdog Millionaire, and there's some things like that. I'm not saying necessarily that's because Bollywood music is lesser than, but that music and the billions of people over there who love it have not collectively been able to exceed enough power that that Bollywood music has overcome people's love for the Beatles and Pink Floyd. And it may never, and that might be the masses speaking to us and saying, we've taken a vote. And Pink Floyd matters more than Bollywood does to us.
1: Well, I mean, like, which masses, though? I mean, you know, there's like a billion
3: people. Well, you and your friends that write books about guys who play one note for 50 minutes it may not be enough for you, but it might be enough for the majority. And these things are written by the majority or created by the majority. They're not, though. They're created by people. They're meant to represent the majority.
1: Right. But who, who gets to represent the majority? And which majority? Everybody's taste. Is going to be subjective and eclectic and, you know, take in a lot of kind of different things and depend on sort of like what your history is and like where you live in the world and what languages you speak. And that's fine. I mean, nobody can know like every musical tradition or like be a fan of like every genre. The problem comes when you start to try to figure out some way to make your own particular take objective by saying, well, this is the thing that is most important to the people or this is the thing that has the most influence or this is most important because it represents this particular kind of music. And it's funny because, you know, I mean, like that's still the case with classical music. Like it's kind of classical music albums never get on this list for kind of the opposite reason. It's because people think they're so important that you can't possibly rank them. You know, I mean, like people are afraid to like, you know, have a Beethoven album behind like Donovan which is what I do <laughs> in my list.
0: Well, and besides, it would be like, well, which performance of the Beethoven album, that it's part of the, what's driving even the structuring of this. And I noticed, you know, when we were kind of putting our notes together, you threw out even some singles or whatever, but the whole idea of I'm an artist and I produce original music and I produce an album and that is a distributable thing. And there's so much music that that is not the model for it. You know, certainly all the beginnings of music, the actual roots, folk songs, Classical, you know, it's really only with the Beatles where it became a so important that you write your own music. And so there's a certain kind of songwriting nerd that will actually be, Oh, I'm really into, you know, the Tin Pan Alley composers that, you know, how many people covered their stuff and these classic country thing, you know, what constituted the canon, the standards within particular, you know, jazz or just various live settings. And so already, you know, this is just something I think that changes from. Decade to decade. And now, you know, when we're getting to the point of the breakdown of record companies and distribution over the internet. And so not having the billboard charts, you know, having a centralized distribution system that you can even count easily how things are getting around. We've already moved past, you know, if there was a, we're getting in the top 10 hits today, you know, that, that is something that just doesn't even make any sense anymore.
2: I think my question responding to, to john's concerns or the kind of the question he was posing to noah and, and the way that i would the way that i would say i would feel is the most responsible way to approach this stuff is what is the purpose of the list what are we trying to accomplish with the list and be explicit about what you're trying to accomplish with the list like, like you said if this is like joe schmoe's 100 albums you have to listen to before you die according to me and only me coming from my particular background and, and the, the experiences that I've had, blah, 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 whatever. That's all well and good. I think the thing that greats about you know, the Rolling Stone thing and, and similar efforts is it does seem to be trying to make this objectivist claim about quality, about indispensability, about universality. Because it's not like the greatest albums of these years On this particular patch of earth, it's the greatest albums ever.
3: Let me push back on that a little bit. And I can't believe I'm about to defend Rolling Stone magazine because I have (laughs) lots of issues with them myself. I was thinking about this. Okay, well then, what media thing, media conglomerate piece of media out there is better equipped to tell us what the 500 most important or greatest albums of all time are than Rolling Stone? Who is better equipped to do that?
2: My answer would be to just to return to my question, like, why, why are we making this list? Why do I need to know that?
3: Because they're in the business of canonizing rock and rock history and have been for 50 something years and they do it longer, more thoroughly and more respectably. I hate, I can't believe I'm saying these words about Rolling Stone, but I am (laughs) then any, there are no other competing magazines that have lasted this long. There are no other competing shows, movies, outlets of any kind that are documenting this kind of popular culture as thoroughly as they have for over 50 years. Therefore, what they say on this matter is the empirical, it doesn't mean that it has to, everyone has to agree, but they don't need to clarify and say, these are the 500 albums we think are important or you should hear because we're the final say at the end of the day anyway.
2: Well, I I just want to clarify what I said real quick. What I'm asking, I'm not talking about what is, I'm talking about what needs to be. And I'm asking why, like, just why do we need it? Like an argument, because like, you can just look around our economy. We are very much in the business of making things that don't need to to exist. Like people do that all the time. So I'm just asking from a standpoint of necessity and vitality, like what is being accomplished here other than you selling your books and magazines. Like, why do we need this? What is it doing?
0: This was kind of getting into what went last time when Noah was on, we were sort of just talking about the function of the critic. And I remember reading at some point in college or something. Oh yeah. The function of these magazines, the music press in general is to regulate our intake. And I found that so insulting. Like I don't need my intake regulated. (laughs) I don't need my, you know, I do think at this point, based on what John was saying that like, Rolling Stone has developed its own brand. And so it's actually not that different than Noah personally saying, these are the albums you should hear before you die. The Rolling Stone people saying, based on sort of the brand that we have built up, these are what we, which is, you know, they're trying to fix it. They tried to ever expand it. They got a more diverse group that voted, you know, every time. And, you know, so there's more rap. There's more. It's not just all stuff from the 60s and 70s. Uh, in fact, there's a podcast I can point folks out to where the people who put this 2020 list together talk about exactly how that went into effect. So I do feel like it's less pretentious than it sounds the way that this just like this is according to the Rolling Stone aesthetic, whatever that is. And that's an evolving thing. These are what we think is worth your time and take that with as much salt as you want.
2: That just carries a lot of weight with your average layperson. And that's a responsibility that has to be taken really seriously, I think. I think that's my point at the end of the day. If we decide this is a necessary thing, if we decide it's a vital thing, I think it's I think it's just essential to communicate very clearly about what it is and what it isn't. And even as I concede that they, it certainly has improved a lot, I don't think that they seem to be taking that completely seriously.
0: Can I ask you a question to maybe wrap this up and move on to the, the album structure thing or whatever? But do you feel like is the consensus that this whole list making, unless it's just purely a personal, subjective individual, not somebody with mass power like Rolling Stone, but exercise, just the, the whole idea of canonization is just morally, historically bankrupt. It is just something that was. Start as a a tool of the oppressors. And even if that's not the intention of people going forward, that's still, it's, it's a lingering thing. We would be better getting leveling the field in some radical way. Or is the solution like canonization is still somehow useful? Human beings can only listen to so much in their lifetime. We want to have a culture and, you know, communicate what we feel like in whatever area is awesome to other people and communicate what was actually uh, influential. So maybe this part of the revisionary version is like, okay, if, if those black founders of rock and roll got erased, well, let's rediscover them. Let's get those guys out there. Let's, let's, uh, you know, or, or put out this NPR's 150 albums by women list, like specifically that let's keep the canonization idea or the list making idea, but try to do something more positive with it.
1: I mean, I think that, you know, people like making lists. You know, they like to revisit things they love. They like to like discover new things. You know, I don't think that that's like, you know, an evil thing to sort of say, these are my favorite best albums. I'm going to put them in a list and talk about why I love them, which is kind of like in doing my book. I mean, like, you know, I had a couple of sort of like goals, one of which was just like, you know, entertain myself, basically, you know, one of which was to say, no maybe introduce people to kind of some albums that they might not have heard before. You know, and finally, it was to, you know, think about like what list making is, especially the idea that, I mean, it's kind of weird, but I, I don't think people think about this all that much is that, you know, any list is like really super limited by what you've actually heard. I mean, with like Rolling Stones, Stone and Expertise and, you know, kind of this, this idea that these are people who, you know, know the field. But I mean, nobody knows the field. The field is like all of music. How can you know the field? I mean, that's kind of wonderful. You know, there's always something out there to discover. There's always something new. To find whether it's an album from a region that you don't know very much about, but happen to stumble upon music from there, or if it's, you know, someone who didn't get wide release and is just sort of like self-releasing, or if it's even, you know, like something from a friend. So the last thing is people should feel empowered to sort of like own what they like and be willing to sort of like say, yeah. This thing is great, even if it's not something that somebody has heard, even if it's this like weird tape loop experiment, which really connects with you. Like you don't have to like put an asterisk by it and say, well, this is my favorite. But, you know, I understand it's not that influential, so it can't go on a list like this.
0: Just to add, so maybe within a genre, like if I'm just discovering Brazilian music, I kind of would rather have a list of like what somebody, I don't even care who, considers to be like, the most awesome, you know, must hear Brazilian albums so that I can be introduced to it in a way that is more likely to make me excited about the whole thing rather than just like someone has a Portuguese name. I'm going to just put that like (laughs) these do this regulation of intake thing does serve a function. I think more so for people that are unfamiliar with a genre than for people that are, you know, it's just, it's almost masturbatory of like, oh, I'm so into rock. What are the best rock albums of all time? That's like arguing over who's the best guitarist or who's the best, you know, it's, it's fun, but it's not, which is the best Zeppelin album, but it is a pretty self-indulgent. It's not a very educative exercise.
2: The difference between uh, what you're talking about there and what, you know, we started out talking about is the difference between curation and canonization. And I think curation's great. There are certainly people who I... Over the years have come to find, oh, I really like this person's taste. So when they recommend something, that means something to me. But that's not the same as, and and not to get too heavy, but the canonization bit and the bit about this is the greatest and the best is pretty culturally specific. Not everybody does this. People make lists, but not everybody thinks about art in that way, where it's like this is a competition and we can objectively rank these things. That comes out of a very specific cultural, political project of trying to turn music into this thing that could be objectively studied as a hard science, because that's what this certain segment of the academy wanted to to accomplish. And I think that that's kind of filtered down to lay people's understanding, where kind of like what you were hinting at, Noah, people will feel like a certain kind of shame about liking a certain kind of thing, because oh, well, objectively, this isn't as good as this other thing, even though that's just a nonsense proposition. Like there's no way to objectively say that, that one thing is better than another. But in terms of if our goal is curation and not canonization, not setting these people upon some some sort of pedestal, which I just don't think is necessary, then yeah, curation is great. Hope you're enjoying the discussion. Let's stop for a second
0: for an ad break. Nebbia by Moen is a revolutionary showerhead. You got this young, hungry company, Nebbia, passionate about saving the planet, about saving water. They're from California, where the drought, it seems, never ends. They've got former Tesla, NASA, and Apple engineers. And you got Moen, a longtime industry leader. Well, they paired to create a superior shower experience. You probably thought your shower head just came with the house and there's that's just a shower there's nothing you could do about it but no you can upgrade your life this very important part of your daily routine and here comes Nevia by Mon with their new Quattro shower head intriguingly designed with four spray modes including my favorite the very luxurious soft spray their signature spa-like enveloping experience and also to uh, hard spray modes. You can figure out which is your favorite or you can uh, rotate between them. All of them have plenty of water pressure. It's no problem washing even the thickest hair, for instance. Yet, they save 40 to 50% of water as compared to a traditional shower. To date, the Nebbia community have saved more than 300 million gallons of water with 50,000 units sold around the world. Their goal is to save 1 billion gallons of water by next year. So, more luxury for you, lower water bills, good conscience, and I should say, it's also super easy to install. It's like changing a light bulb. Nebbia by Moen Quattro starts at just $119 exclusively on nebbia.com. And Nebbia gave us a special discount just for our community. Go to nebbia.com slash N-E-M. Use code N-E-M at checkout to get 10% off all Nebbia products. Again, go to nebbia.com slash N-E-M. That's N-E-B-I-A dot com slash N-E-M to check out what they have to offer. Save 10% with the code N-E-M. John, do you have anything to add or transition us to the next topic?
3: Well, let me say one thing that's kind of interesting. I want to say make one point about one thing that's hitting me really hard having this conversation. So Rolling Stone was just the Bible to me when I was a kid. And whatever they said, I took as gospel. And I still have up in the garage my issue that came out on their 20th anniversary in 1987, listing the top 100 albums of all time. I read that thing. I still have a lot of it memorized. I can tell you what a lot of them are, where they fit. A lot of it confirmed my own likes and dislikes i was really into david bowie and i was the only person i knew and he had two albums on there and it's like wow great okay the people who know what's up the smart people are telling me that my instincts are right here what's interesting to me is that here we are however many years later and because of the democratization of criticism and the ability for anyone to stream whatever they want and people not caring about albums anymore and saying, well, I like Watermelon Sugar by Harry Styles, better than I like anything on Dark Side of the Moon, so these people are old, they don't know what they're talking about, I don't need to listen to that. The need for canonization is slipping away, as evidenced by people like Noah and Mobley who could not care less about having that kind of stuff documented anywhere, whereas in 1987, I lived by that kind of documentation. I wanted that so badly. We're probably going to enter some sphere here or some chapter in human history where nothing is canonized because everybody's equal and everybody's good and has value and we don't place one above the other. And then in 20 or 30 years, someone's going to be like, you know what? We should start ranking people again because that's how you know what's really good. And then it'll start all back over again. It'll just be a cycle.
2: I wouldn't say we're not doing that now. I think that like Spotify, YouTube, Apple music have, have a really great interest in ranking people and getting people to be preoccupied with numbers. So I don't think that's going away by any means. But, you know, when you look at the difference, the distribution uh, of music then versus now, even, you know, when I was a kid, the music I had access to was the music that was distributed in the stores that I could get my parents to drive me to. That was the entire world of music to me. And the way that that functions in terms of the way that you listen to music, the kind of identity formation you do around the music you listen to is just radically different than when some kid in Shibuya puts out an EP and then you can hear it anywhere in the world with an internet connection. It's just it's just different. And kind of to your point, the ways that we think about this stuff has to evolve with that. I just want to combine the two stories. It's
0: what John, what you were just saying about Rolling Stone. and. Well, Lee, what you were just saying about the evolution of these things. So I remember in college, I had to do a research paper in some music-related class. I was looking through microfilms of Melody Maker Magazine from the 70s. And it was like all these things that I had just discovered, all this sort of early 70s prog rock, that was one of the things that I, I felt like I discovered on my own, which of course I didn't, but it, like, it didn't come off the radio. It was something that I had to make some effort And there was a sort of an elite group of geeks who are into this kind of thing. And I didn't even, I don't even know if I knew too many of them, but to find Oh, there was actually a magazine. There was a Rolling Stone equivalent at that time in England that was covering this stuff, treating that like that was what was popular music. Of course it was, you know, at that time in 1973 or whatever, it's just, you know, you move something in time, it seems very weird. And then there were years went by and there were just these bands that I would hear about in this way, like, well, if you like Genesis, you're like Gentle Giant. And I didn't hear Gentle Giant until like 15 years later, because like, unless I wanted to actually spring to purchase albums by these guys, like there were just too many of them, then I just wouldn't hear them. And it wasn't until like Napster, et cetera, where like I could actually, you know, this stuff actually isn't as good as I, <laughs> I thought it would be. But anyway, just how that changed over time. I guess this is a good way to transition that as we're getting more technology, the album was the, of course, there's top 40 radio and stuff. That was one way of getting things. But otherwise, the album was the unit by which we receive things. And probably like I started off here saying, you probably didn't own that many. And so at least if you're anything like me and really like music, you would just make them go over and over and over until like, this song has to come after this other song. Like that's the way that they move. So what do you guys feel about what is your level of sentimental attachment to the album. There should be a reason, Noah, why you wrote your book about albums as opposed to like the best songs or something. There's something about it's a larger piece of their soul that you can get a better picture of what this artist is about at that moment.
1: Dave Marsh actually has a a Thousand Greatest Songs book, which is really interesting because he talks about how looking at singles, the canon is kind of more black and more female than when you focus on albums you know in part because of like who has access to studio time and you know kind of like who's considered important enough to be able to make a whole album it's an interesting book uh yeah i mean you know i'm still like you know i mean i'm old i'm from the era when like the album was ascendant so that's probably as much the reason as anything Uh, you know it's also interesting to think about there kind of have always been for a long time before there was the album there have been like conceptual song suites right They're in classical music even look at like singles i mean one of the interesting things i mean people would often do a single which was like kind of these concept singles right where bing crosby and louis jordan would do two songs together you know you'd have them on the single so it was kind of like obviously conceived of as like an experience so it's kind of interesting the ways that like the album as like obviously like a physical thing that you would buy People also collect music in different ways. There are lots of professionally curated playlists, obviously. I put a NPR Tiny Desk concert thing on there. I mean, that's another way that people kind of create these little like song suites that are, you know, longer than a song, but nodding towards an album, but maybe not quite that long. There are lots of video and audio formats where people collect music together in one way or the other. And while we wouldn't necessarily think of it as an album, it's obviously related to some degree. Albums are kind of curation often, right? Bands creating a group of songs, which Mobley was talking about. And I think that impulse continues, even if this one particular format is not the thing as much
0: as it maybe once was. Yeah, Mobley, what's your connection?
1: Mobley actually has this kind of like fascinating collection where he released an album of songs with a, particular theme and then people could purchase it. And then when he released similar songs, when he released songs with that theme in the future, they would also get those songs, I think, right? Am I describing yeah. the project correctly?
2: I, I will say I called it a song, a song cycle and not an album. I was particular about that because I feel like an album should be a, a discrete artistic statement, but it's actually kind of meta to be on this podcast right now. Cause I'm in Colorado in the middle of nowhere working on an album right now. So my, my feeling about the album, obviously I have a somewhat sentimental attachment to it, although I think it kind of began to die when I was fairly young. It's not a super deep attachment to it, but as an artist and as somebody who's trying to create music in this environment, something that I feel pretty strongly and something that I hear a lot of fellow artists echo is that there are ideas that just aren't single ideas. And that doesn't mean they're not good. And that doesn't mean that people don't want to hear them, but you just can't put them out as you're single. Like, My next record is probably going to start out with like a two and a half minute instrumental. It'll have like some sound recordings and found sound stuff in it. And that's just not a single. Like that would be terribly detrimental to my career for me to give that to my label and ask them to push that and associate my name with that as, yeah, this is what Mobley thinks can go on the radio. But that doesn't mean it doesn't have artistic merit. That doesn't mean that there shouldn't be a place for it. And so I have kind of an attachment to albums as a place for ideas like that to live. But I'm also interested to figure out what the next thing is, you know, singles are the length they are because that's roughly how much you could fit onto a seven inch. And that has, for whatever reason, stuck. But that doesn't mean that it couldn't change. Music has been around ostensibly for millions and millions of years, but recorded music isn't even 200 years old yet. We, even the people on this podcast, are shaping what it eventually will become. It's still in its infancy, you know, it's like... It's learning to crawl on this timescale of human artistic endeavor. So I do think that, you know, this algorithm driven, huge tech conglomerate dominated music landscape that we're in now, where that's kind of who's deciding what gets made or, or what gets heard is scary. And we need to kind of pump the brakes and think about whether we want to drive over that particular cliff. But I'm interested in, in what comes after the album. I hope that I get to see at least some of that before I die.
3: So, John, I know you're an albums guy. (laughs) Say something about that. Idea of an album at this point feels like an artistic choice. Like Mobley was saying, he has a song that doesn't fit in any other capacity. Therefore, I guess I'll make an album. That's a choice that he's making. Most of the legacy artists, especially that I talk to, are really – some of them feel like whatever they're creating isn't real unless it's on an album. And when we say album, we're talking about 10 songs – maybe on a CD. Maybe that's, they're just all streaming under one name on Spotify or whatever. But a lot of them feel like, what's the point? No one's going to buy this anyway. It costs me money to make these albums usually. you know, I might press 500 CDs and when I'm sold out, I have to press another 500 and I only have like six more people that want one. So I'm going to sit with 494 CDs in my garage you know, and uh, try and sell them at gigs or whatever. I could pull my boxes out and show show (laughs) you. I mean, you get it, right? So, I mean, as somebody who still prefers entire albums, because I feel like that's the artistic statement that somebody intended to make. I want to hear what they had to say all at one time. I still prefer that, but I don't blame anybody for putting out music however they want to hear it. And I don't know what the best way to do that is anymore. I don't know... If you need a major label, I don't know if you need to be on a Spotify playlist. I don't know if you need placement in a commercial. I don't know how it works. Someone like Mobley would know. But at the end of the day, Mobley's just got to do what he feels is right for him and his artistry. And defining it will probably get figured out after the fact.
1: You know, having the album go can be limiting in the sense that you're then you're back to the single. People obviously, I mean, I guess this is what Mobley was talking about with like ways to go post album. You know, people are doing interesting things that are kind of like, wouldn't ever fit. One of the longer things on my list was this album, Death Mask by Goth Girl. So they're a Harsh Noise Wall artist and they released like one track every day for a year. I don't know if you know what Harsh Noise Wall is, but like, it's like this like huge deafening, just like shriek 365 tracks of that. I think the longest is like 10 minutes, but most of them are like just a few seconds.
3: Noah, that didn't make your best of all time list. It it is. (laughs) Oh, good, good, good. Okay, good, good. I'm sure the masses just have to hear this before they will all agree with you.
1: It's a slog. And, you know, but I mean, it's like, it's an amazing thing to do, right? I mean, and they're, they're trans and it's kind of about dysphoria and anxiety. And yeah, I mean, it's amazing. And, you know, not something that you would have been able to even... I mean, obviously people like wouldn't even have thought of like being able to do something like that twenty years ago because you wouldn't, you know, how would you distribute it? How would you even get it in a format that people could deal with at all? So there are definitely exciting kind of possibilities as media changes, as well as losing possibilities. There's definitely a loss in, you know, not necessarily being able to sell certain things as coherent artistic statements. But there's some interesting upsides as well.
0: Ideally, I mean I think about albums exactly like the way I think about set lists is how long do I expect people to sit through something? And how can I make the levels go up and down and you know there's so, specific roles that like the first song has to have and what's gonna go at the end and just make it make dramatic sense. I feel like the album stopped making as much sense when we got rid of LPs with side one and side two, because it's really only like a 20 minute thing, a side of an album that I think somebody's brain can really in a practical way, internalize the whole dynamic flow of it. The first song has got to really punch you. And then maybe the number three is like where the single is. And then the fifth has to be something, but, and then side two sort of has its own parallel rules, but you could be a little crazier about the whole thing. Once we shoved all those. So now it's 10 in a row or more likely Because CDs could fit more music, you know, 80 minutes that a lot of my albums are like 16 songs, 18 songs. I know no human being wants to actually listen to 18 songs in a row. Actually, I feel like this movement toward people just more releasing EPs makes a lot more sense of like, I just want to keep myself in the public mind. I want to keep my fans happy. I don't want to wait two years and come out with something. I want to come out with like a few songs every few months or every six months or whatever your rate is. I think it makes a lot more sense to listeners.
1: It's interesting the CD era, though. I mean, that was kind of when you started getting hip hop skits, right? I mean, like one way that people sort of pulled their albums together was that they would had these, especially like you know De La Soul mm. or you know people are like or yeah. like Tribe. Yeah, and you can see like outcast doing that too. You know, I mean. You know, people sometimes I think thought of skits as like something to endure. I mean, De La you know, it like pulls the album together. There aren't sides, but there's, you know, it's kind of like a concept that keeps coming back and sort of like tells you that you're spending time with these people. You know, I think there are CD albums that do interesting things with the format, maybe.
2: I think the other thing that artists, because we've kind of taken an artist-centric focus on, on the conversation at this turn, and a thing that artists are contending with is there's still a lot of prestige associated with albums. So I totally agree with what you were saying, Mark, in terms of the logistics of it. EPs just make so much more sense in terms of, according to our overlord, Daniel Eck, we're supposed to be putting out a certain number of songs per year. And that's a lot easier to do if you're putting out EPs than if you're putting out albums. But in terms of like music press and getting their attention and in terms of... Or grounding a tour. Yeah, exactly. You're going around to talk to radio stations, and stuff like that. There's a gravity and a prestige associated with an album still that people just don't take an EP as seriously and certainly not a single as seriously. We're in this weird liminal time where things are obviously in flux. A lot of old ways of doing things just clearly do not make sense anymore, even as they have their merits. And even as there are things to them that I personally certainly want to hold on to, I think we haven't quite settled into a thing that makes sense for everybody. So from the artist standpoint, you're kind of contorting yourself and your art to fit into these boxes, to do the things that you have to do pragmatically to make a career work.
1: I mean, little Nas X is somebody who kind of had this career for a long time without an album and managed to like get everybody to talk about him. You know, he just released Montero. And, right, I mean, he managed to like do that repeatedly where the videos and the, the singles were like so conceptually interesting and gripping that everybody talked about them and you could write about them without there being an album. So much so that when his album came out, it was almost an afterthought. Like, you know, it wasn't that big a deal compared to when the singles came out. But for the most part, if I'm going to interview somebody for an outlet, if I get a chance to do that, there has to be an album to pin it to. I mean, I'm sure that's not the case for everybody, but that's what I found mostly.
0: So I'm wondering if we can close out by kind of going around and discussing some of what we've been saying in with a case study. So I'll just start like the Beatles white album was a thing that I just loved and sort of modeled my whole college band after because it was so eclectic, but it's clearly a model of something where being in that group made the individual songs better. Like there's some things that are just, you know, wild honey pie. Like the fact that it was this double album, this massive thing meant that they could just put out whatever weird kind of shit in there that they wanted to. Whereas in a 10 song album, uh, that would have been a little harder to justify. Maybe you could put it as a song number nine, or I'm thinking about like the police with the telephone is ringing. Is that my mother on the phone? In other words, Andy Summers has that one song that he is allowed to put in, which just <laughs> seemed, you know, for an otherwise good album, most of the time I was growing up, like, why are you indulging that member? Just somebody should have chopped that out. But in something like the White Album, like that would have been absolutely appropriate. Anybody have a nomination? <laughs>
3: for something you want to throw out there? I'm curious what Mobley thinks about classic albums. Like, what albums do you feel strongly do you have,
0: about? Do you have a, a one in particular that you think like really works as an album that
2: you've always loved?
1: I forced Mobley to give me a list for my book, actually.
2: Yeah, there are a lot of classic albums, particularly classic rock albums. A lot of the, a lot of the music, I may excuse rock. It's not all rock. Punk is what got me into music. And so a lot of times... That's what I end up coming back to. But if I had to pick one album, if I could only listen to one album for the rest of my life, but it, it would be In Rainbows by Radiohead. I think I was just in the right time and place. They put it out for free. I wasn't really into Radiohead at the time, but it was like, it's free. I might as well listen to it. And it was probably on repeat for like three years after that.
0: And is it really the album as a unit or is it like, As soon as I put that on and sort of the feeling of the first few songs, like that's the thing that really, I feel like a lot of the albums I really like it's because it's not because of song nine, like it has to be uniformly good, but the thing it's still an immediate thing of like how it starts or pretty close.
2: Yeah, it's definitely how it starts, but it's also, it's very moody. I mean, Radiohead is always moody, but it's a very moody. I think it's their most sensual album. Like they feel like human beings with bodies as opposed to just like <laughs> robots or aliens who are looking, looking down at earth from space. It feels really embodied and it, there's a quality that it has, an emotional quality that it has from right when it kicks in until the end. It's transportative in a particular way that I think the best albums that I've heard are
3: Mark, I want to comment on your question specifically because it reminded me that Rolling Stone in the most recent list named What's Going On from Marvin Gaye, the best album of all time. And that's one of those albums that, as you were saying, is taken better as an entire album than piece by piece. In fact, there's a couple of songs on there that are almost more interstitials. They're not even completely... You wouldn't pull out one of those two-minute songs like flying high in the friendly skies or something and put that play that by itself and be like man I love this song but when you listen to it in the entire context of what's going on it just maintains the beautiful perfection of this piece of art and so yeah there are albums that work that way having said that and let's all agree I think we're glad that Rolling Stone got that right you know <laughs> I remember back in 1987 that album was number 10 all I knew from Marvin Gaye was sexual healing and I was okay well I guess I got to look deeper into Marvin Gaye, and sure enough, I did, and it's one of my favorite albums of all time too. You know, It holds up culturally, it holds up politically, it holds up as a piece of art, but not every album has to do that. I mean, when I think about some of my favorite albums of all time, I like them because I like eight or nine of the ten songs that are on there. In fact, I was thinking, I'm going to dumb down our conversation here for just a second. For whatever reason, some of the albums that came to mind when you posed this are four of my favorite albums of all time that each have one like fatal flaw song on the album. One is NXS's Kick, which has Mediate with junk garbage. <laughs> it's one of the singles. <laughs> I know. And it doesn't, but see, it kind of ruins that, you know, it keeps it from being perfect to me anyway. But it's a bridge, it's a piece of nothing. Another one of my favorite albums of all time is Billy Squire's Don't Say No. And there's this really sappy sad drudgery ballad at the end called nobody knows and i skipped that every time and i realized that's true for another one of my favorite albums of all time is brian adams reckless that is just jam-packed with great songs and i even like heaven but that's another ballad that i just kind of move past now and so poor ballad sometimes in my canon my own personal canonization there are the things that if they aren't good They're the skip tracks on albums that I think are perfect without them. You know what I mean?
2: That calls to mind something that I did want to say before. And it relates to something you were saying, Mark, about like going back and listening to prog records that you hadn't been able to pick up before the streaming age or whatever. But the way that I listened to albums when I had to buy them and when they physically existed and when there was a limited number, because I grew up pretty poor, I could maybe, maybe on a good month afford one CD. And I was going to listen to that thing back to front five, 10, 15 times. And if I didn't like it, it wasn't because it didn't catch me on the right day. It was because I had listened to it a bunch of times and I knew for sure that I didn't like it. And I think that made me a better and more cooperative listener. And I think a lot of us were just predisposed to be more that way because of the means of consuming music. And there are definitely albums that I listened to as a kid Where there's no way I would have skipped this track as a kid, that I do not ever listen to that track now because the way that I listen to music has just fundamentally changed. And that's a factor in all this, too. That's just an interesting thing to think Mm -hmm. about.
0: So I want to give Noah the closing recommendation here, but just to respond to John, when I have those albums that I like nine of the songs and don't like the 10th, I tend to take that as a personal challenge. Like, I think this person is a genius. I should get that last thing. So I mentioned The Cars first album. In touch with your world is this wacky song that's thrown in there with a lot of bells and whistles and things. And I love it now, but for the first long time, I didn't unlike the police song where the bad song is cause it was a different songwriter that they let do a thing. Like if there's the Ringo song on an, uh, you know, <laughs> <laughs> it's okay to hate that, that it was just there for, you know, political reasons to make somebody in the band happy. But if it's the same creator, I, I just don't feel right. Rejecting some little piece of their heart if I like ninety percent of it.
1: As with this entire list, I like thought about this obsessively. But there's like so many albums. If there was a song I really didn't like, I kind of didn't put it on there. One example is there's this album El Gavilán by Sofia Ray. She's an Argentinian musician who's in New York now, and she did this album with Mark Ribot in 2017, and it's kind of traditional South American songs rearranged. Yeah, it's fantastic. But there's like a 10 minute song. Which is the title song, which just goes on forever. And I just could not like it. So I didn't, I ended up not putting it on. There was a similar thing with a uh, Chu Ishikawa, who's a Japanese industrial musician who did the music for Tetsuo the Iron Man, which is, uh, this kind of great body horror Japanese film. And it's amazing industrial music. I mean, you know, it sounds like you're being pounded to death in a factory, but then there's a ballad. I couldn't take it. So I kept like trying to figure out if I could put it on, but then I, I didn't like that song, so I did. not I think the thing that I would finish up with, because it touches on a lot of the things we've been talking about in terms of albums coming in and going out and the difference between curation and list-making, is this collection by Ian Nagoski called To What Strange Place, which is a collection of Ottoman diaspora songs, which was out in somewhere around 2017 or something. It's like three albums and a big booklet. So it's basically a collection of singles from that era. And the era is actually before Harry Smith's anthology. Like people don't know this, but before country and blues records became a thing, a commercial thing, you know, the record companies kind of really didn't know what they were doing. So they like tried a bunch of things. And one thing they tried was putting out records for immigrants. And there were a lot of Ottoman immigrants from Turkey and Egypt and Greece, Eastern Europe and the Middle East, in the US and cities, and they would buy these records. It's this whole world that our take on, like, canon, what's important, and what American music is, and, like, what music is, just sort of, like, skipped over and completely forgot that this existed. And it's just this amazing act of recovery and curation and creating this wonderful album that just, like, makes you think differently about the entire history of music.
0: All right. Well, thank you so much for all three of you for coming. If anybody wants to stick around for a few more minutes after this, we could have some supporter-only talk to kind of get more information on what Mobley's working on right now, on how it's working for you to distribute the book, Noah, on your podcast, John. Thank you, listeners. Thank you, everybody. Thank
3: you for having
2: us. Thanks. Before Shopify,
3: were you wondering where my sales at?